Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Because I have, amongst the slides, I have maps, right? There are maps coming up soon, so brace yourselves for some, some history. Yeah, this is the, the Jesus I never knew, and we are, you know, through the series, like trying to, to take a look or a peek uh, at some things maybe we never knew about Jesus, or, you know, it's, it's kind of like this... Uh, They say like that lullaby effect, you know, when you become familiar with something, often you kind of miss its real meaning, Um, like the lullaby, like a rockaby baby in the treetops, right? Like, and when you think about that lullaby, how dangerous and absurd this baby that falls out of its tree is, but, but, you know, there's the lullaby effect, right? You don't, you you know, you heard it so many times that so much familiarity, we forget that there is a baby in the top of a tree and someone has put it up there and... I'm a parent, but I, I'm not quite that irresponsible. Not yet, anyway. We'll see. Um, so, so, yes, um, the, the, and the message, that, the title today um, for this one is called Jesus in Jericho. Everyone say Jericho. I have two stories that happen on the way in and on the way out of Jericho, uh, and they're, they're really important. They, they give us a lot, and they give us some insight, hopefully, into a Jesus that, that you never knew. Right. And so there's two stories um, but let me, um, let me start with this. I often think that when we come to the Bible and come to understanding what was going on in the Bible and try to know things about Jesus, it's a bit like trying to cross a bridge, right? Like there is a bridge between where I am and what was happening in the Scriptures. So here's a, here's a good example. So that picture right there was created just recently, I think this year, by a Dutch artist using artificial intelligence, so using algorithms from a few different data points about ethnicity and cultural tradition and, and people at the time and sculpture and paintings and renditions to pull together what is you know, a potential, like we don't actually have any detail to go off what Jesus really looked like, but this could be one of the best guesses of what Jesus actually looked like. But there is a big bridge between where I am and what was going on in the time of the Bible. I mean, it's 2,000 years into the past. I mean, more for other parts of the world. So that's a big bridge to cross, to get across all of that history. Uh, It's another language, right? It's ancient Greek, not even modern Greek, ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew. Um, The cultural and historic traditions of the time, what was actually happening in the background, um, you know, all of those things really, really matter. Um, and it's kind of like crossing a bridge. And so what I'd love to do before I get to this two stories in Jericho, I want us to try and go across this bridge a little bit together to the best, of, the best that we can do in about seven or eight minutes. Have you got your lollipop ready? If you need some sugar, if you're not an anti-sugar person, suck on it now because you'll need it for the next seven or so minutes because we're about to go in, into slide territory uh, and look at what, uh, what was the world like at the time of Jesus. I hope it's at least interesting for you. I want to, um, before I get into it, a big shout out to everyone joining from Canberra. Can we recognize our Canberra group who are at Impact Church? They are uh, hoping to, they are planning to meet in person again next week. Um, so, you know, Canberra, we shout out to you all in your living rooms or phones or whatever you do watching. And obviously everyone else who's watching online, um, dive into this history lesson with me together. Let's rewind back about 300 years before Jesus uh, to the time of the Greek Empire. So this is, uh, you know, King Alexander, his, his dad was a Greek king uh, up in Macedonia. So right on the top left of that map, you see one of the words at the very top left is Macedonia. So um, where this, this starts, so Alexander, who would later in history be known as Alexander the Great, 
takes over for his, uh, his dad of Macedonia and starts just conquering one by one the, the, the Greek areas, the Greek states, which are kind of warring at the time, and just kept moving, kept moving down. You see, he moved down through what is modern-day Israel, all the way down to Egypt. He establishes a city there called Alexandria. So Alexandria is named after Alexander, Alexander the Great. And moves away and then starts moving all the way into what was the Persian Empire uh, and, and just conquering, conquering all the way off to, to modern-day India, right to the top. So, he, so this was sort of the end of the Persian Empire and the start of the, the Greek Empire. This is the, what they call the Hellenistic period, not the classic Greek. This is just after the Hellenistic period. Are you with me yet? Have we gone too much history? Because I've got more to go. Um, and, and what's fascinating about this conquest wasn't necessarily the fact that he conquered so much land. I mean, empires had come and gone before this. Was the fact that Alexander was, you know, this was a conquest to win the hearts and the minds of those areas, of all those people, very disparate groups, all the way, if you think from Egypt to India, right, and all that was going in in all those lands, even think of where the Jews were in Israel, just like a, the Jews were sort of a nobody group of people there, like worshipping their Yahweh, whatever they were doing. Uh, but the Greeks, Alexander, united them all with one language. This was sort of the first time there was like a single language operating in such a massive area. It was that the language of the educated and the, the language of learning. If you were learning something, you were learning it now in Greek. Uh, ideas began to travel, you know, travel became a bit safer um, through this area. You know, though, though in the, the next slide you'll see this kingdom did divide um, just after Alexander died. And you'll see, I've just got an arrow pointing to where Israel sits. Um, so this is where Jesus was coming into. I'm going somewhere with this. The empire split. You had like a southern and a northern Greek kingdom, but they were Greek by and large for the next few hundred years. Uh, Israel kind of unfortunately sat in between two kingdoms, and it was kind of like the kingdom from the north would occupy Israel, then the kingdom of the south would come up and take Israel, and then back and forth. So they were kind of right in between varying conquests of, of Greek armies, right? So they're in the right in the midst of this. They, you know, the, the, the Jewish people here, this is a few hundred years before Jesus. Um, and then, uh, then what happens is this, there was a Roman Empire. They were sitting, if we go to the next slide, if you see this white Italian peninsula, that's where Rome was and the Italian group there. It's not Italian, I should say Roman. Um, and they uh, began their conquest right now to, to battle against the Greeks. Uh, and it was actually, I think, a relatively easy takeover. But the Romans then established what was much more to the western side of Europe, in modern-day Spain, all the way up to, um, to, to England, and, but then all the way down through Egypt and through Israel, this was the conquest of the Roman Empire. So if you think of it this way, the Greeks conquered with their hearts and their minds. The Greeks brought culture. They brought philosophy. They brought art. They brought plays in the open area. They brought, um, there were open-air theatres in all the towns. This was a Greek idea. The Greeks were for culture. The Greeks were for language. The Greeks carried philosophical traditions and ideas from Plato and Aristotle, uh, mathematics and all of these things. But what sort of happened was that they didn't actually build a very stable political system. They, they, you know, once Alexander died, it sort of just fractured all over the place. But when the Romans came through, the Romans were for order and justice and military might. And they built infrastructure to govern over the top of this. So in fact, Rome inherited sort of the culture and the united language of Greek. They didn't even change the language. I mean, Greek really stayed the language across this time, even though they could have made it Latin. 
Um, but so now you have this Roman Empire over the top of the Greeks. Uh, and if you see the next slide, and into the mix of all that, you have Judaism. So this is where Jesus is. We want to cross this bridge. This is what's happening. You have Greek Hellenistic culture. So let me just read something that might be an interesting idea for you to think about with Hellenistic culture. Um, the, let me just find, it was one of the philosophers. The philosopher Protagoras, just before this, said, Man is the measure of all things, of what is and what is not. This philosophy provided the foundation for Hellenism, which is devoted to the supremacy of human beings and human accomplishments. Really important to understand that. The Hellenistic, this Greek period, was known for elevating man. Man above all else. The beauty of man. And probably more man than woman too, right? Like women were not uh, given any, any sort of place of authority or privilege or anything. A highly oppressed group uh, at this time. Children, absolutely. Um, and, and they kind of had this flow-on effect. The value of man and human accomplishment, Olympic Games. Think of all the things that came out of this period of art and sculpture, sculpture of human. Um, all of these things led really to um, a big aversion to helping oppressed people. Babies, I mean, infanticide, leaving babies that were either uh, female or partially misformed or whatever um, to die. It was really like a culture that focused upon um, the height of humanity, the height of man in that culture. And you mix that with the Roman rule, with the Judaism at the time, you start to get a picture of where Jesus was coming from, the kind of things he was encountering, this Jewish people that had just been uh, governed by the Greeks, back and forth, different Greek kingdoms. They were now adopting a Greek language. These, these Jews were being exposed to all these Greek philosophies and ideas. And, uh, and then the Romans come through and just start annihilating. They bring order. Um, they, they take over the temple. So the temple now has, um, has a, a, a high priest who was paid by the Romans, right? So you know, they didn't really even have a really good functioning religious setup either. And into this mix, and please, this, this kind of thought is what you need to go, and when you dive into any scripture that Jesus is doing, if you start from this kind of thought, think of those things, this should help you forever. Now that you know this, this will help you every time you dive into scripture to know what Jesus was doing. Into this, Jesus visits Jericho. Everyone say Jericho. Now, I have a tale of two stories, uh, one of the way into Jericho, one on the way out. Jericho is a city or, or a town. It's still there. You can still visit Jericho. That's a, that's a picture there in, uh, in Israel. Um, you might remember the, the story but um, from, from the Old Testament of the walls come tumbling down. But what's important to know is there are two stories that happen. And if you encounter two stories often in the Bible, one beside the other, there are reason that the author has written them together. And these ones actually fall at the end of chapter 17 and the start of chapter 18. And remember, chapters and verses were actually included in the Scriptures much, much later, hundreds of years later. The, the original author wasn't writing a sentence and going, all right, that's verse 1 and that's verse... No, that feels like a full chapter. You know, that's, a, that's 10 minutes of reading. That's a full chapter. I'll start my next one. Um, that, well, that's a good daily... Com that's a daily uh, uh, devotional. Are they not thinking this, right? Like, this is the authors are just writing what's going on on parchment. Uh, and they write these two stories, and I want to go over them today. So history lesson over, let's dive into some scripture and read them with me. This is part one. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. 
stop for a second. Let's think about this. This is happening on, on, we can see on the outside. It's as Jesus is approaching Jericho. Why is it happening on the outside of town? Whenever someone who was like a guest of honor, which Jesus was, he, had a, he was celebrity status at this point in Israel, people would come out of the town as a sign of honoring someone to greet them on the road, right? Like maybe laying palm leaves down or whatever. But this is something that's really, really common in Middle Eastern culture. So they're outside of town. There's a blind man there. Uh, And they told the blind man, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way, so the people there, rebuked him, told him to be quiet. Actually, you could really translate him saying, shut up. That's literally the words that they say, which is they just say to him, hey, would you shut up? Um, But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me, probably unsurprising considering the inherited Greek Hellenistic culture that would see someone, an oppressed person, as, as lower class. I mean, the class system was very, very heavy here at this time. Uh, and someone who was oppressed like this, was, it was better if they would be quiet, especially if someone from, of honor was coming, coming into town. What happens next? It says, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Right? The very people who were saying, telling him to shut up, just says, hey, hey, you, go get that guy and bring him over to me. And Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Interesting question. I mean, right? Like the blind man could have said, well, I actually just want money. Right? He could have. Uh, he says, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. It was a big object lesson for the people standing there. But what I think really is happening, and, the, the, and what is happening is something that is shocking at the time, is that Jesus, a great religious leader, who is expected to come into town and receive the hospitality of that town, stops, and what does he do? He engages an oppressed person. Jesus engages the oppressed. This, this really should be the calling card of Christianity, right? The, the church does not necessarily have a great track record. I mean, you can definitely point to aspects of, of the church, um, starting the first hospitals and universities um, for being a, a body over history that has brought good into the world. Um, but there is also track record of the church um, being on the oppressor side, right? oppressing uh, oppressed people, right? Um, and, but in this time, Jesus did something that was truly revolutionary. Um, if, you, if you go back up one slide, um, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. Jesus was doing something absolutely revolutionary by addressing oppressed people. It was something the religious leaders would not do. The Roman leaders, the Greek leaders would not do at that time. Leaving uh, children to die, leaving um, you know, women, widows, this sort of thing, leaving them off to the side and completely ignored was status quo. It's not so much today, right? I think that society at large has a better consciousness of the, the oppressed than at that time. So Jesus is being absolutely revolutionary. But let me, um, let me read a quote by, um, by a church historian. It says this, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response, get this, to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. By providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to 
cope with many of the urgent problems. Uh, the early church, in, in this way, in following Jesus, became famous for helping oppressed people. I, I talked about before about how routinely babies were left to be exposed, right? Uh, and you know, it's, it's quite violent when you, you kind of get to understand what was happening and what the, the practice was. And we know a lot about this. We know it was very common. We have letters and, and documents about how this was commonplace. Um, and the, what would happen to those babies if they were exposed would just either, you know, either die, but there were many other awful things that would happen to babies just left there. And the church developed a reputation in the early days for bringing in and adopting disabled and deformed and, I guess, female as well babies, Right, and it wasn't you know if you think about it at that time, raising a child, especially a disabled child, it's not like the proposition that perhaps it is today. There's no social welfare. You're not getting an extra payment at the end of the from Centrelink because you brought in a child, um, and this child is not even perhaps not even going to be able to pay their own way eventually and provide you security in your older age. It was a huge sacrifice that the early church was famous for. Not only that, sick people, people who would become sick and just be left out to die. Once again, the church was famous for bringing them in uh, and bringing them on board. Same, same with widows, right? And we shouldn't be surprised because that was taught consistently in the Bible that Christians should, should care about the oppressed. Let me, um, let me say something that's a bit more serious here. Because if you might be listening to this and thinking like, in this whole story so far, I kind of feel like one of the bystanders. Maybe I see the blind man, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm the kind of person to tell him to shut up and, you know, I, I could do better, right? But you might actually be listening to this, um, watching this online right now, or, or listening to this later on, and, and just you identify with that oppressed person for whatever it might be, circumstances, someone in the church, someone in your family, but you have suffered at the hands of oppression and you would identify that. It's not going to be everyone, but there are people that would identify with that. And it's certainly a tough thing, perhaps even to listen to someone at a church with a microphone try and speak about a God who cares for the oppressed. But I do want to pause and say this to you, that God sees you, he knows you, he cares about you and your state right now. He has seen the oppression of his people, that's the scripture he says. And I just want to pause and just say right now, if you perhaps identify with ignored, ostracized, oppressed, whatever that might be. I just want to tell you that God loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. And Jesus will engage with you in your state right as you are. You don't need to, be, to, to break out of that in order to come to God. He will, in fact, call you out to him. And, and obviously, we as a church do, do not want to be a church that engages in any, you know, we, we want to be open arms church. We, we do. Uh, to help you in, in whatever might be happening in your life. So just want to say that before I move on. This church is, is for you, and we want to be a church for the oppressed, who sides with the oppressed, just as Jesus did. I'm saying that to you, to you right now. Story part two. Everyone say part two. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Everyone say passing through. You just got to stop and you don't miss this, what was happening. When, when a famous rabbi go, like, went into town like this, when a celebrity enters town, 
um, what they're doing is they're, they're coming in because they're, they're likely to receive the hospitality. They're going to get invited to one of these sort of famous upstanding citizens of the town is going to invite them for dinner and they would stay and it would be a bestow an honour upon that town for them to stay for the night, right? And that town would have been prepared. They would have been going out of town to greet him. They're waiting for him to come into town. They would have likely prepared one of the sort of rabbis or priests or someone around that area is, going, is ready for Jesus to stop and stay. He's going to stay for dinner. They'll put out their best food. They'll have a big public conversation of sort of challenging each other and talking about the times but think of it like the queen coming to town like we we do that right like if the queen comes to town like that's what that's what happens right and it's similar in middle eastern culture that's what they expect they go out of town they greet him comes in and then what is jesus was passing through the absolute height of rudeness you wouldn't believe it how rude it was for jesus to pass through a town when they've gone all the effort of preparing for him and greeting him out on the road. Not only does he scold them for ignoring a blind man, then he goes and snubs them. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And for those of you, if you've been around for a while in the Christian, you kind of understand a tax collector is someone appointed, a local appointed by the Roman government, the Roman rulers, to extract money from the people to pass on to the the, the Roman government. Uh, And if they were wealthy, what it meant was that, you know, there was sort of a pre-allotted amount that the tax collector needed to pass along. So anything beyond that was gravy. So tax collectors would just go and just take as much as they possibly could, especially the rich ones. They kind of had the Roman army to enforce for them, but they were seated as a traitor. And so this guy's a key, he's a completely hated guy. So think about it. What is he? He's an oppressor. On the way into town, Jesus meets an oppressed man. On the way out of town, he meets an oppressor. So this man wanted to see what Jesus was. Because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. This We know this is happening on the other side of town because those trees weren't allowed to be planted in town. They were planted outside of town. So Jesus has come in, he scolded them all, right? So what did he scold them all for? He scolded, scolded the people for not siding with the oppressed. You can do better. You've forgotten about the oppressed. I came to save and see, you know, I came to save the oppressed. Comes through town, finds an oppressor. And what happens next? I think today there is a, a, a very pervasive worldview and method of dealing with social change that attempts to lump all, uh, all phenomena that we see of, of inequality, whatever's going on around us, into two groups of the oppressed versus the oppressor. It's a strong need for this, right? To, and, and those lines often are divided over uh, race or skin color, over gender or social status or sexual orientation, whatever intersectional lines might be drawn to take every situation and to divide people into one of these two groups. You are an oppressed person, but you, hey, because of these characteristics, you're actually an oppressor. And then the motivation becomes, like for anyone who you might consider like a, a standing by kind of person sort of watching it happen, commenting, is, um, is to do everything you can to sort of hate on the oppressor to express hate, to then go about shaming that oppressor. And especially if you belong in that category as well, you have to try and really retract of your sin of being part of this oppressor class. Um, and, and then to, to express that shame and to shame the oppressors into social change. Call out, 
shame, hate. You know, and, and, and don't think as well, just be careful, don't think this is a left versus right thing. Don't think that only people like on, on far left version of politics are doing this. People on the right are doing this just as much, okay? Calling out people who are oppressors, right? So before you think that, and it's, it's, this is how pervasive it is, that everyone's playing this game right now of lumping people. You're an oppressor. You're oppressing me, right? This person oppresses. And so Jesus comes into town, scolds this group of people. You have been oppressing this man. So what's the next thing Jesus is going to do? I tell you what our modern culture expects Jesus to do. We expect Jesus to shame the oppressor. That's what our modern culture would expect. The ancient culture didn't expect Jesus to address the oppressed person. But our modern culture, we've got a different problem. Their problem was him addressing the poor. Our problem is him now, how he deals with uh, with the oppressors. Jesus should come and say, hey, Zacchaeus, you've been taxing people. You're a traitor. You're a filthy oppressor. You need to change your ways. I can't believe you've been doing this. This is disgraceful behavior. You're despicable. You're the worst out of everyone. You need to change your ways, right? That's what we all expect to happen. Let's go see what happens. Next slide. When When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. What? I must stay at your house. After passing through the town of snubbing all the people, I'm not staying here. What? Jesus isn't going to stay here. The height, the height of a gesture of love, of humility, and especially of grace to an oppressor says to him, I'm going to stay at your house. And look how the people responded. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and what? Began to mutter. Do you think people like this? They didn't like Jesus doing it back then, and especially not now. We all want Jesus to be down, just to bro down with the oppressed, and that's all we want him to do, and we want him to hate the oppressor group. That's what we want and expect Jesus to do. Now, remember, I just want to say this. He did not condone the oppression, did not endorse, and to how I'm cool with what's going on, but how he went around it. Zacchaeus stood up and said to him, look what the result was. Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay four times the amount back. Huge heart change, a complete soul-spirit transformation for this man. And you kind of think, what would have happened if Jesus went up and just shamed him? Think this would have happened? Do you think he just would have folded his arms and said, "Mm, just what I thought, another moral religious teacher. Yep, that would be right. I'm going to go back to my better money right now. But Jesus loves the oppressor. Jesus engages and loves the oppressed, but Jesus loves the oppressor. What a phenomenal, phenomenal way to be. This next scripture where he says this, but to you who are listening, I say, this is what Jesus is teaching, love your enemies do, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. What teaching? You see, the Christian ethic is not just to love and engage with the oppressed. It's actually you have to love your enemies. How bad is that? That's a hard, hard teaching. That is a hard thing to come to terms with and come to grips with that you and I, are expected to look at someone who mistreats you and extend love 
expend love to them. And you know what? Like, this is almost bad news. It's almost bad news. Because do you know what? If you're probably like me, you, you, if you are like me, sorry, you probably have a hard enough time loving people who, who actually love you. Like, I have just three boys. I have children, right? Like, and I love them and they love me, right? But I have a hard time actually just being kind to them. And they're my offspring. Jeez. And then here's Jesus going, hey, they're the easy ones, right? You know what's hard is loving someone who mistreats you. And they do mistreat me. Don't get me wrong. Um, Love someone who mistreats you. Love someone who hurts you. Be kind to your enemies. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. And it would be bad news. It would be bad news if this was the way to heaven. If this was the way to salvation. If this was the, the entire end of the story expectation that you and I must go beyond, be superhuman, be loving and kind, be generous, be careful for the oppressed out of your way, but then love your enemies as well. If you had to do all of that stuff, you would just sit and go, I can't do it. Cannot do it. I can't do it. It's too hard of a teaching. And it would just lump a burden on you right now. And I'd send you, you I would be sending you out of here going, that's, that's tough. I'll give it a shot. But you know what? I'm not going to do that. If you're being, being, being honest, we could, all, we could all smile and clap and go, yeah, let's all go out and love our enemies, right? But you're probably not going to do that. The Bible says this in, in Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we, everyone say we, everyone say me, everyone say I, that while we were still sinners, oppressors, enemies, unkind, jealous, gossipers, impatient, while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And it is only through that, it is only through the fact that he has died for us to redeem, to restore you, that from that place, when we are healed and made whole, that from that place, we can go out and love our enemies. You can do it. You can extend kindness towards people who are unkind. You can love your own children. <laughs> Thought I'd get more laughs for that. I think it's funny. You can do that, but not in an effort to save ourselves, not in an effort just to be like Jesus, not in an effort to be a good Christian, but because you and I, we aren't perfect. We're saved by his grace. He died for us. And maybe this is a total new teaching to you today. Maybe you're not exposed to Christianity at all yet, and, um, or, or this, is, this is new to you. And what I'm telling you is this, that the Christian message is not that we go out and try and be perfect people, but a perfect God came from heaven and he died for our sin and our darkness and our proclivities towards hurting other people to take them away and you and I can know what it is to be forgiven to be made right before God and from that foundation we join with God in a mission to bless the world in a mission to love the oppressed and to love the oppressors and you can know that you can know what it is to be saved to know God as as the Lord of your life and to accept what he's done for you that's what it is to be a Christian it's an acknowledgement that I'm not perfect. It's an acknowledgement that I'm sinful. But then it's to be born again and made new in who God is and what he has for your life. Before I pray, I, just, I, I, I always like to end with something at least a bit practical. Here's just 
Just two things to think about this week. This one, the first one is simple. Pray for someone who wrongs you. Actually, someone might come to your mind right now. There's someone who has wronged you and they're holding a place in your mind right now, which is a bit like this person is annoying. Uh, could be close family, child, whatever. Could be boss, could be friend, could be, you know, whatever, colleague, you know. Pray for someone. Try it out. It doesn't feel very good, right? When you have to start doing it, you're like, oh, God, I don't want you to bless this person. You know, but try it. I promise you that it will change your spirit and your heart. And once you do it, the first time it feels forced, and then pray again for that person, and you, you begin to see them as God does. God will stir up mercy and stir up grace in your life, and the bitterness will fade away, and you'll feel, you will feel genuine love. It doesn't start like that, but trust me, just try it. And, and secondly, find someone to bless, like bless up, bless down, right? All right, let me pray. I've been gone for a long time now. God, we just thank you that you came into the world and, God, you did things that were, were completely unexpected. God, we thank you that you have shown us what it is to, to love oppressed, to love oppressors, God. But more than showing us, you died for us, you restore us, you set us free, and, and you send us in the world to be your ambassadors. I pray that we as a church and everyone here today would know that love, Pray for any person either here, maybe watching at home right now, God, who needs to accept that, to make a decision to follow you and to give their lives to you. God, I, I thank you that they would know what it is to be forgiven, to be restored and to start a relationship with you, God, to live their life following you. I bless this church as they go out into the week, Lord. God, that you would, um, they would be a light in dark places. They'd be a blessing to their families, to their dinner table, as they drive, as they work, as they learn, as they pray. God, whatever they do, God, this church would be a blessing to each other and a blessing to the Sunshine Coast. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.